Welcome back. I wanted to take some time this week to first begin by going over reasonable suspicion and probable cause, as understanding these terms serves as a backbone, really, for understanding the content this week about the exclusionary rule, as you first need to know when you can search someone in order to assess if the evidence can be used or if it'll be excluded. Okay, so just to give a little bit of that background, let's go over reasonable suspicion and probable cause. What do these terms mean? and where do they come from? It's important to note that probable cause is listed, though not very well defined, in the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. So it's constitutionally derived. It means that police need to have a level of knowledge or reason based upon facts to believe that a crime has been committed or will be committed. Most legal experts articulate probable cause as roughly 50% certainty that crime has been or is going to be committed, as determined by a reasonable officer from his or her knowledge. And this is the level of knowledge necessary in order to arrest and to search individuals. And an arrest means that you have full custody of the individual. They're not free to leave at all. And a search is an intrusive um, search of the individual where you can go into pockets and things of that nature. Okay, so that's the basics, but let's go a little bit backwards. In 1968, the Supreme Court decided the Terry versus Ohio case, and this case is important. In this case, a plainclothes officer saw two men doing what he knew to be casing a store to rob it. Both would walk back and forth nearly a dozen times looking into the windows of the store. So the officer followed them and confronted them, and in his confrontation, he performed a pat-down of the men on the outer portion of their clothing. And during that pat-down, he felt what he knew and could articulate as a reasonable officer to be pistols in their pocket. So he then arrested both men, and they were charged with illegally carrying concealed weapons. And at trial, Terry argued that the pat-down, otherwise known as a stop-and-frisk, violated his Fourth Amendment protections because it was done without probable cause. And thus, they should have to exclude this evidence of the pistols per the exclusionary rule. And that's what we're going to be discussing this week. The trial judge denied the request, though, and he was convicted. The Ohio District Appeals Court affirmed his conviction, and he appealed his case to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court then did something quite interesting, as they, too, upheld the constitutionality of the stop-and-frisk procedure, and then they read in new language to the Fourth Amendment, as they said that officers could conduct such procedures as long as they had, quote-unquote, reasonable suspicion that the targeted person was about to commit a crime. So the Supreme Court literally changed the meaning of the Fourth Amendment and read in a lower level of knowledge that would then change the course of police interactions for years to come, as this allowed for many more stops to occur. And they ruled this way for the rationale of officer safety. They said that allowing officers to pat someone down was not too intrusive, but it allows for officers to be safe in their interactions. And that's as per Terry versus Ohio. Again, this was mainly something about safety and about finding weapons on individuals, though a case about 20 years later um, also indicated that officers could use this in order to find things like contraband. But remember, reasonable suspicion simply means that you can stop and frisk someone. You can detain them. So they aren't free to leave, but only for so long as a reasonable officer would take to conduct their investigation. And while the court's not ready to stipulate an exact amount of time. They don't like to do that. This is typically understood, though, to be no more than like 30 minutes to an hour. And then you'd need to let somebody go unless you found something further within that investigation to bring your level of knowledge up, say, to something like probable cause.
And then also within this, you can frisk them. So right, it's a stop, which we just defined, and then a frisk. And so a frisk is just a pat down on the outer portion of their clothing. It's not a search because you cannot go into things like their pockets unless you have something of reason or unless you have probable cause. And you need to be able to articulate what it is that maybe moves you from reasonable suspicion to probable cause. So while probable cause is entrenched in the Constitution, I mean, literally, it's written there, the Supreme Court read reasonable suspicion into it through case law. So that's kind of that big difference. And probable cause is a higher level of knowledge. And while reasonable suspicion is a lower level of knowledge. Most legal experts, again, say that probable cause is about 50% and put reasonable suspicion at about 25% certainty. So this content will be extremely important for you in your upcoming verbal exam. So make sure you can articulate the difference between these two, but also make sure you understand them so that you can apply these to scenarios, because that's really what I'm going to give you. Okay, so why did all this matter? Well, when we talk about the exclusionary rule, it means that only properly obtained evidence can be used in court. And improperly obtained evidence has to be kicked out i.e. it can't be heard in the court of law. And many times this can stem from things like improperly applying reasonable suspicion or namely probable cause. So if you say only have reasonable suspicion and you decide to search someone, you violated their Fourth Amendment rights and any evidence you then obtain will not to be able to be used in court. So as an officer, you can butcher an entire case by messing up on these things. So that's why you really should care about this content. Okay, so the exclusionary rule. The exclusionary rule stems from another case out of Ohio in the 1960s. And in this case, there was a search for a bombing suspect that led police to Miss Dolly Mapp's home, as the police suspected that her basement tenant was their guy. Um, and they actually provided her with a fake warrant, so pay attention to that, and then searched her home for, a bomb, for the bomb suspect that they believed was living in her basement. However, they also went upstairs to Dolly's room, and in her drawers they found, quote-unquote, obscene materials from pornographic comic books. Um, and they seized this and they charged her. But Dolly fought this in court as her defense attorney argued that because the warrant was fake, the search was thus illegal right? It's a Fourth Amendment violation. And so then evidence obtained from an illegal search shouldn't be admissible. Um, the Supreme Court agreed and created what is now known as the exclusionary rule and the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine that states that any evidence that comes after and indirectly from the illegal or violation of rights can't be used against you. So this judicially created rule was created to help limit police misconduct and to disallow police from benefiting from bad investigations. As before this case, illegally obtained evidence was actually used in state courts. The case of Weeks versus U.S. in 1914 made it so that illegally obtained evidence couldn't be used at the federal level, FYI. However, even before that, essentially we were using evidence even if it was obtained illegally. Um, so this is an extremely important historical case, especially this MAP case, as it means that prior to MAP versus Ohio, again, illegally obtained evidence was used. And after this case in 1961, it no longer could be used in court against you. So this is a very, very big deal. Now, of course, there are going to be some exceptions, right? Of course, they couldn't make this easy on us. 
Um, and sometimes when the exclusionary rule um, doesn't apply as well. So there are instances when we don't have it apply. So let's dig in. Let's first go over exceptions to the exclusionary rule and the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine. Um, so first up is the independent source doctrine, which states that the evidence can be used if the police find another way of finding the same evidence that is not tainted. So perhaps they messed up on finding the evidence initially, but if there's another avenue that exists to get it as well, um, and that, that one hasn't been violated, they can then go for it. Second is the inevitable discovery, and this just means that the police would have inevitably found the evidence in the future despite the illegality of it initially. So see the Nix versus Williams 1984 case. While police illegally obtained information from the defendant during an interrogation about the whereabouts of a body of a young girl he was thought to have murdered, there was a search underway at the same time, and they found the body a short time after he gave the information. So while the information from the defendant should not be used in court, the police would have found the body with or without it. And lastly is the passage of time rule. So as long as there's enough, long enough amount of time, um, and again, the court doesn't like to specify exact amounts, but as long as there's enough time between the illegal conduct by police and police and the discovery of evidence, it can actually end up being used, although it's not that common. And in addition to exceptions, there are also limits to where the exclusionary rule even applies. So the exclusionary rule only applies to the government, which namely for our context means for the police. It does not apply to private searches. So as long as someone outside of government personnel finds something, it doesn't really matter how they found it, because this rule is not going to apply to them. Also, the exclusionary rule only applies to criminal cases. So illegally obtained evidence can be used against you in a civil-based case. Also, evidence obtained by consent does not apply to the exclusionary rule. And in most cases, this is how this happens. This is how police get information, as people are highly unaware of their rights and tend to defer to authority of law enforcement, even when they probably shouldn't. As in many of these cases, police ask because they don't have probable cause. But it doesn't matter because if you give them consent, they're good to go. So again, this is actually the most common way um, that this exception doesn't end up applying. Additionally, the exclusionary rule doesn't apply to abandoned property and or to denial of ownership. So if you throw it out and it's not on your property, garbage cans get to get us into some interesting water here. Um, but if you throw it out against on your property, it can become fair game. Or in places that do not have an expectation of privacy or that are in plain view. So if you're out in public, um, if clearly someone can see something in your home, like if it's sitting right in that front window that is visual from the street, those types of things can be used. And while the cartilage around your home has privacy protection, so it's kind of the land immediately surrounding your home, the open fields around it do not because there's no expectation of privacy at that point. And further, the exclusionary rule doesn't apply to what we call good faith exceptions or honest mistake where the police think that they're operating correctly. This allows evidence to be used in cases where things like maybe the search warrant have technical errors or things of that nature. So think to the two of the discussion threads that we have this week. You should be seeing a connection right here. All right, so that's the basics. Um, make sure to beef up your knowledge of probable cause and reasonable suspicion, as these really will serve as the backbone for the rest of our content before the verbal exam. All right, until next time.